Hi, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of the Mirror Media Podcast. Today, we are actually joined by uh, uh, Professor Prakash Shah, uh, an attorney and a lecturer in London. Um, And we'll get into his background in a few minutes. Um, And we're going to be talking today about the Western Foundations of the caste system. Um, It's a heavy topic um, and I think a very uh, potentially divisive topic, very controversial and high, high explosiveness topic, but it's also a topic that needs to be addressed, especially the way I think uh, Professor Shah and his um, uh, co-writers and co-editors of the book addressed it. Um, And today we also have Ratit joining us um, on the interview. Um, so without further ado, uh, Professor Shah, would you uh, k- kind of give us uh, your background and kind of how you um, went from being um, an attorney into kind of the, the work you're doing now and kind of your educational background and, and where you are currently? Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you, Mukunda and uh, Rachid Bhai for your invitation. Um, I've seen a number of your earlier podcasts quite impressive collection of people you have there. Um, So in terms of my own background, uh, I'm actually not an attorney, uh, nor am I a professor, uh, because, uh, well, I'll deal with the attorney part first. Uh, I am not qualified to practice law, although I have three degrees in law. Um, And uh, I'm not a full professor in the British uh, academic hierarchical system. Uh, although in the United States, I would probably be something like uh, an associate professor, I, I, right. I suppose. Uh, yeah, so in, in, in the British hierarchy, I'm, I'm referred to as a reader. I'm, I'm, I have a, I'm a reader in culture and law at the University of London currently. And what does that mean exactly? Uh, so I guess that's a kind of professor in waiting, a full professor in waiting. <laughs> okay. Yes. So... Uh, uh, do you, would you like me to say something about my uh, academic background? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like if you yeah. can, um, kind of like not only your academic background, but kind of your background as an individual, right? Because um, like, oh, okay. I think that's important to frame the conversation and, and how you got into where you, uh, the, the work you're doing now, too. Uh, I think you're probably more correct than you, you, you may realize, because one of the things that uh, I should, should mention is my birthplace is not in India. Uh, nor is it in Britain. Uh, so I was born in Kenya, a uh, member of the Indian diaspora, but on the African side. Wow. And I had my early education up to primary level, up to the end of primary level in Kenya, in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. And I immigrated to Britain when I was 13 years old uh, and fell into the middle of high school here in okay. the United Kingdom. So, and I've lived here ever since. So I've, I've been resident and national Britain for more than 30 years, 30, 35 years or okay. so. Um, one of the things that uh, it, it, I, I might mention it uh, in due course, because I think it also has a bearing on how I came to uh, approach the problem of caste, okay. uh, which, is what we, which is what the book under discussion is about. Yeah. Um, or I can mention it straight away. I mean, I just just, just briefly, I, I, I'd like to say that, see, the way uh, caste has been received among the uh, members of the Indian diaspora in East Africa is 
not the way I think it has been educated. Uh, it's it's been received among people of a similar age to myself who've been brought up in India. So in India, caste carries a massive stigma because of the Indian educational system and the kind of uh, stigma it transmits about caste to sure. people who go through it. Um, so, so, so in that sense, it's important that I have this East African background because I haven't grown up with the same kind of stigma around caste that so many of my Indian colleagues in cohort have. Um, and nor did I, uh, I suppose, absorb the, 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 the kind of stigma about caste or such as it exists uh, among the people of my age who would have been brought up in Britain primarily, right. born and brought up in Britain, which I wasn't. Uh, so I think having that, having had that sort of uh, halfway education in East Africa, in in a way, insulated me from uh, uh, having this sort of stigma about caste, and also allowed me to approach it from an af- academic perspective. In I w- I would like to suggest in a more neutral way than many Indian scholars have been able to. Sure. So if I may ask, uh, so you you came from Kenya around age twelve or thirteen, right, to the UK? Yeah, that's that's correct. And um, and did you did you live in London? Did you live in one of the uh, like like the areas where a lot of the Indian people or the diaspora lived, or did you live like somewhere else? I uh, uh, I've always lived in areas of London, different areas mm-hmm. of London, where um, the uh, Indian diasporic presence has been significant, fairly significant. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Uh, so when, or you you might say more broadly, the South Asian diasporic presence has been fairly significant. Uh, so, Professor Shaw, because my I am an attorney, I tend to ask questions throughout just to kind of um, uh, flesh out, you know, your the the story and your ideas. So, if you don't mind, uh, could I can I ask some questions about your? Not, not at all. Not at all. Feel oh, free. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, you, when you came to the UK and and you were living say, you know, now in the diaspora of the UK, at this time, did you find like a difference between the, the, the Indian community that you belong to in Kenya and then the Indian community that you belong to in the UK? Was there a difference of culture and, and how you even how thought about caste when you came to the UK or did that not play a role at all? Well, you, uh, the, uh, to answer the first part of your question, uh, I, I, the Indian community or, or the part of it which I uh, joined when I arrived in Britain was basically an extension of the uh, East African community that I had been a part of while wow. living in Kenya. So as, as you might appreciate, the, the, you know, the, in Britain, the way in which migration patterns have developed has been very much in terms of the extension of transnational and translocal networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, among particularly among the Indian diaspora and more broadly the South Asian diaspora, uh, so people tend to link up with people who they already know have uh, a familial connection with or some kind of acquaintance, you know, for a relationship or friendship or you know some other such uh, uh, link. So. So and th- th- that's what happened to us actually. So so relatives of ours were already in Britain, right. uh, and fairly well represented in the area of Britain that we ended up in. 
And so I suppose you could say in that sense, it was a sort of soft landing. Right. Uh, but then you very quickly become aware that, you know, there are, there are people from all kinds of different areas of origin uh, who are now represented in Britain. And so that became a sort of, you know, growing consciousness, if you like. And right. uh, in a sense, I, I, I managed to deepen that uh, consciousness also by pursuing the kind of academic studies that I did eventually. So, sure. you know, so where, 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 you're, where you're then uh, met with uh, the existing research on the communities, the kind of data that exists on the communities and so on. Uh, so a lot of my work in, in, in you know, su- subsequent to school days in university has been mm-hmm. around uh, immigration, immigration law, the establishment of diaspora communities, um, the, the multiculturalism in Britain, how the state has responded to the identity demands of different groups and communities, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so, right. so I've been following and tracking the way in which different diasporas have developed and you know established themselves in Britain and in the wider Europe uh, more recently, and the ways in which legal accommodation has uh, been patterned for different diaspora groups in that sure. Way. So. Yeah. So, if you don't mind me asking, uh, I, I, I assume, uh, given your name, you are from the Gujarati community, right? Very, very well, <laughs> very well guessed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, I and, the, and the thing I always I'm hesitant about, and I don't know how Rachid feels about this, and I'm just kind of going with it is. So we're we're about to get into not only your background but also the very heated, debated, controversial, personal, and difficult issue of caste. Sure. Um, so in this context, do you, do you think or have you ever dealt with your cast uh, by writing this book, having a sense of um, people telling you that whether or not you belong to a higher caste, and therefore you come from a place of privilege to even talk about this? Um, and that's one of, the, one of the things I want to see. I mean, like, for example, like I come from the Iyengar community in Tamil Nadu, which is, you know, uh, we're, we're uh, a, 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 a Brahmana Varna and then and, and, and Jati would be I guess Iyengar I don't know um, mm-hmm. but but there's always these issues that to for me to even talk about caste it, there's this idea that I, because I belong to a community that was historically seen as being superior um, that anything I say is probably in, invalid or not of uh, worth listening to now now my question to you is, did you ever deal with that in your process of, in, in your past few years of education and probably even when you started this project? Um, and the short answer is no. I, I didn't really encounter it for for many years. And it's only recently, I suppose, since the, uh, the whole issue of caste became a kind of, uh, came onto the legal radar and the parliamentary radar. Uh, that I began to take take a greater greater interest in it, and actually became aware that it was something around which a politics could be done, and 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 a, and a legal regime could be framed. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, one was always aware, somewhat in the background, that you know, Indian Indians have caste. You know, the the, the kind of stories, the narrative that, you know, we're we're all familiar with that Indians have right. caste, they have a caste system, and so on. But it was never really in your face. Growing up in Britain. Uh, and even during my university days and so on, I never really encountered any kind of stigma 
okay. you know, uh, I mean, people sometimes, you know, people might say to you, you know, or oh, you're you're from an Indian background, you you have caste, don't you, or you have a caste system, but that's as far as it goes. Um, so, you know, pe- people at large have this kind of uh, broad common sense that there is something. There's some relationship between Indian culture and caste, but that's that's right. that's what they know about it. They don't know much more about it, you know. Right. Uh, and then when I uh, more recently, when I began to look at the academic writing writing uh, around caste in Britain specifically, I realized that there's actually been very little research on caste in Britain, uh, which is actually quite interesting because it's a bit of a contrast to how things have developed in India uh, for several decades now. Uh, right. And also the way in which caste has come to be politicized in the in the American scene, in the American academic scene. Uh, so that that's a kind of you know it's a if I suppose it's it's an interesting factoid, uh, which and one which I came to be aware of, uh, but in in my more recent research, not as I, I've been growing up. Sure. So so after you came to the UK, and, and we'll get back to these topics. I just want to broach it really quickly and then pick up on it later on as we get into the the meat of, of the argument of the book. Um, so you, you came to the UK, 12, 13. Where did you end up going to, uh, I guess, undergraduate and, and, and your other degrees? Where did you end up doing those? Anyone? Sure. So I, I, all my degrees have been in law. Uh, yeah. So my first two degrees were at the London School of Economics, um, uh-huh. which is part of the uh, University of London. Yeah. And for my doctorate, I was at the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies, which is also part of the same university. Okay. Uh, so pretty much a London-centric kind of higher education experience. And, and um, were you really focused on, you said earlier, immigration work, or was there something else that you kind of uh, focused your academic pursuit on? Uh, no, that, that's absolutely right. The My, my first uh, academic specialization, if you can call it that, was in immigration law, migration law, nationality issues, refugee law. In fact, my doctorate was in refugee law, how refugee law developed over a period of several centuries in the British context and how it took legal form in relation to different population movements across time. Uh, I think uh, that's, I mean, just by, I mean, I think it's going to be such a, I mean, I would love to talk about that too, because I think that's so interesting, especially <laughs> yes. in, in the modern context of what's going on in, in, in the Arab world and the migration issues, both dealing in, in the U.S. side on the illegal immigration that they, you know, from, the, from Central and South America and Mexico, and then on the, on the European side from the Arab nations that are in turmoil coming into the country. I, I would, we could talk about it later, but, I, you know, I think it's fascinating. And, and, and I guess my question to you is, why did you decide not to practice law when when you're so passionate about it um, as far as going up to getting a PhD? Well, uh, th- there's an interesting background to that. My father uh, actually studied in law in London uh, as, a, as an overseas student from Kenya uh, back in the 1950s. So he qualified as a barrister, uh, then came back to Kenya uh, to start his practice. And so I'd always grown up with this idea that law is a noble profession and uh, had more or less considered no other career, in, you know, as I, as I was growing up. And obviously one looks up to one's father and I always, had, you know, thought of him as quite a heroic figure because he always uh, seemed to stand uh, for the for the disenfranchised, you know, the the, the, right. the kind of... The, the David rather than the Goliath in, in the legal battles that he fought. Sure. Um, 
so I, I in a way I'd always had this implicit idea that I would probably pursue the you know him into the legal profession and so on. Right. Uh, I the when the decision had to be made though right, towards the end of my undergraduate studies, you know, because in in Britain we have separate bar exams. You've right. got to kind of spend some time. Uh, studying at the bar and so on, and then uh, do your training, do your pupillage. Um, but when it came to applying for the bar, uh, I had to sign this form. And, it, you know, somebody has three, I think some, some can't remember the number of persons who have to certify that you're a jolly good fellow. Or, or <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm putting it in a facetious way, but it was almost right. almost as bad as that. Right. And I thought, oh, can I face this? I'm not really sure if I'm ready to enter a kind of profession which is premised around these kinds of you know, structures, if you like, or conventions. Right. And so I just sort of did it around, did a master's degree, did a PhD. And the only reason I did a PhD, actually, was because I had a grant to, I got a grant from the School of Oriental and African Studies to do one. So, right. you know, it was a series of fortuitous happenings that uh, led me into the academic path rather than, you know, uh, well, it sort of, in a way, confirmed for me that, the legal practice world wasn't for me, but that academia could be a viable option instead. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's really interesting. Um, so, uh, I, just a quick aside, uh, Ruchit's just dropped off. He'll jump back on in about like 15, 20 minutes. He has uh, a work call that he's got to take, but he'll jump right back on. Um, so, I, I think it's fast. So, you. Hello. Uh, oh, so, so uh, sorry, you, you dropped off for a bit there. Okay, no, I, yeah. I was I, I, sorry. I said um, you uh, can you hear me properly now. Yes, yes. Okay, um, so you decide not to practice law and then stay in the academic world, and this is going to curtail into into your book. Um, but how did you get in touch with uh, Professor uh, S. N. Balagangadara? You know, like because like your book is such a big. Uh, testament to his work how did you like in, end up interacting with him and how did you get the book process started with with him involved well uh professor balagagadara or balu as, as he's, he's he's known known for short uh is probably uh, i i came became aware of his work probably around a decade ago uh, so it's pretty recent, if you like, in my academic uh, career. Right. And so it was certainly, I hadn't heard of him, I wasn't aware of his work uh, in, you know, in the years that I was sort of forming, if you like, as, as an academic. Right. Uh, and pursuing intellectual problems and so on. So, uh, in fact, very recently, I've, I've written this up somewhere in draft. Uh, you know, I tried to describe my academic trajectory. Uh -huh. uh, so I suppose my first academic tra trajectory or uh, influence uh, in the academic world was uh, through a professor, uh, a professor of South Asian law uh, at SOAS, okay. uh, Werner Mensky, uh, who is uh, who is and I, I, well was and continues to be uh, one of the foremost experts on uh, Hindu law in Britain and in Europe, in the wider Europe, in fact. Um, by, by Hindu law, do you mean like uh, uh, Diyabhaga and uh, uh, Mithakshara law? Yeah, the, or? The, the entire Dharma Shastri. Uh, oh, Dharma Shastri. Yeah. Uh, and, it, it, and, like, 
pre Dharma Shastra, post Dharma Shastra. Oh, very much connected uh, to like Patrick uh, Oliville. Yeah, you could say. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, also Hindu law into the colonial period and uh, post-colonial period and so on. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I never studied that material formally with him, but I used to read more or less everything he wrote. So I, okay. I, I tended to, and, and he's also a comparative lawyer. So I, I sort of developed a parallel interest in comparative law while not having studied comparative law with him or under him. Uh, but if you like, studied by osmosis <laughs> all the right. stuff that he was producing and the kind of influences that he was exposing me to uh but the first thing that i i um if you like i i tried to follow him into in a more mm -hmm. concrete way was uh the diversification of my own interest from immigration law into uh, this question of cultural diversity, or as we used to call it, ethnic minorities and law in right. uh, in Britain. Yeah, because he was one of the first people to have set up a specific bespoke course at SOAS on ethnic minorities and law. I see. Uh, you know, so before that, the subject was virtually unknown at university level. Interesting. Um, mm. And so I ended up teaching that. And then uh, it so happened that most of my research actually, had, uh, you know, ended up being in on questions of cultural diversity and law. It's just fascinating the fact that Britain was, you know, the the empire which the sun did not set. So there must have been so much ethnic diversity and minorities for at least a couple hundred years on Britain's soil. So I mean, the fact that the the study didn't even become anything until recently is, is kind of strange to me well i suppose you see even before uh professor mensky's course was started yeah uh you you already had you know this the the, quest, the 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 study of the race question if you like from the, particularly from the 50s and 60s in britain uh and lots of sociologists and other types of socio social scientists anthropologists had done work on diaspora groups you know micro studies and so on. So it wasn't as as though academia in general was unaware of the increasing diversification of uh, British society, particularly in the post-war period. <clears throat> but uh, uh, I suppose my remarks are more relevant to the legal domain. See, in the in the legal domain, it took somebody like Professor Mensky to really pioneer uh, a, a legal course uh, or, or a legal curriculum. Uh, for the study of ethnic minorities in law, and that was and that didn't happen until the late 1980s. So right. compared to other academic domains, I suppose law was a kind of late comer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and so, and uh, I think if you if you look at developments in the United States, Canada, and so on, you'll see similar parallel true. sorts of That's sorts right. of development where the lawyers have kind of more lately become interested in stuff that you know in material that. Other other groups of social scientists were already working on, you know. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to throw the, uh, the trajectory. I mean, uh, the divergence. But uh, continue, please, with with how you connected with uh, Professor Minsky and then to Balak and Gather eventually. Oh yeah, yeah. So 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 I, I, as I was saying, I mean, I, I got exposed to all kinds of different influences because of. Uh, my, uh, you know, uh, acquaintance with Professor Mensky, and he was also my doctoral supervisor, right? Uh, which meant that I could, you know, I, I could work quite closely with him on a number of things. 
uh, a number of sort of projects and, and, and questions which which all had some overall link, you know, at, at some higher level. Right. So, so I, I suppose the, the one thing that uh, became a link to Professor Balagangadhar was my interest, which Professor Mensky had inspired in questions of Hindu law and South Asian law. Sure. Um, and so when I um, came across Professor Balagangadhar's work, right. uh, some of the kind of miles, I, I suppose, I, I don't know if milestone is the right word, but, you know, some of the, some of the um, signposts uh, right. were there, if you like, for to, which helped make me uh, alert enough to recognize that here was somebody who was a very important intellectual who had pioneered his own research program and was asking questions about the study of India and and, uh, and the comparison of Europe and India as, as cultures in their own right, right. Uh, in a very, very different way to how, you know, dom the dominant scholarship was working on those questions. Right. So, you know, it immediately attracted me to his work. And then, you know, I, I began to meet uh, students of his, uh, who'd done work within his research program and so on. And I thought, uh, you know, I was absolutely amazed. I thought, wow, this is a really different way of looking at Indian traditions and culture. And also a different way of looking at how Europe has uh, fundamentally influenced the way in which we, we, we look at Asian culture as a whole, actually. And not right. just Asian, Asian culture, of course, as we know. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the way Europe's thought about the whole world Right. Is, the, is the way we actually predominantly think about the, that world, you know. Wherever so, you're from, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our place in it and so on. And, and that includes India, but it's not restricted to India or to Asia, you know. So, 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 so you know, he really uh, sort of brought home some of the very deep problems that were attendant, attending, you know, research and the study of... of uh, India and and for me that you know that extends to the study of the Indian diaspora as well, right? You know, and it was really in, in a way you could say it was an, another fortuitous set of circumstances because had I not been acquainted with Professor uh, Balu's work for a few years already, I wouldn't have been able to intervene in the question of the law on caste discrimination in Britain, which right. just sort of popped up. Just a few years down the line, from 2013 onwards, right? So, so, so the, the sequence of events was really amazing. That they, I, I was in a position to be able to look at the problem of the caste law in Britain in a way that no other academic was prepared to to do in Britain. So, so, so let's actually talk about that because I think that's what your chapter in the book is about. Because I think it's actually a good segue into the sequence of events that led you to. Start the book, I think, is also, it's also connected to the chapter in the book you wrote, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah, so yeah. so can you kind of walk us through that sequence, and then and then we can talk about the 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 details of your chapter, um, and then kind of get an overview of the rest of the book. Uh, yes, you. So you mean how I came to encounter the question of the cost? Yeah, of yeah, yeah, and then, and then um, how that led to the book. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So actually, uh, I. I was a kind of latecomer to the question of, of, of the caste law because, see, already in uh, around 20, 2009, 2010, um, the question was already there. And in fact, the, the legislators had already inserted the word caste into the anti-discrimination law in Britain, right? Uh, 
Uh, but at that time, they'd given themselves a power to legislate, right? So the, the expression of caste was in the law, but it hadn't right. been implemented, right, Just to make caste discrimination unlawful. But in 2013, what happened was that the some some members of uh, the House of Lords, which represent certain vested interests, right. uh, you know, of which have been fairly critical subsequently, sure. um, they uh, ensured that that... Uh, reference to caste in the existing equality law was strengthened to in such a way as to compel the government to implement caste for the purposes of the equality law, right? Which would have made caste one of the grounds for uh, bringing legal actions uh, under under that discrimination law, right? So you so could that, have been sued for caste discrimination. Yeah, but that was in effect from 2010, right? Yes, as I'm trying to say, there was a kind of layering, right? So the 2010 okay. version of the law was a kind of permiss permissive uh, expression in the sense that it would have allowed the government to, to implement that law. I see. It would give right? them the choice. Exactly, exactly. And so as we say in English law, it, the government had the power to implement, yeah. to make caste right. an aspect of race. Uh, but in 2013, that uh, wording changed from may to must, must okay. right so they 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 were obliged from then there on right. to uh to make caste an aspect of race uh, so, and, and and that's an interesting story how caste got to be made an aspect of race so, so the racial uh, element is very important. yes we'll we'll jump into that but i want to get into what if you would know why was there even the idea of having caste even in the 2010 um, uh, 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 anti-discrimination law. I mean, is there is there a history of caste issues or violence or any discrimination in the UK that would would kind of uh, 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 be be the basis for why they would do that? Well, let's say some people have said that there is an issue of caste discrimination in Britain. <laughs> let's get that out of the way. Okay. Um, right. But if you look at the kind of you know, report stroke studies that came out before 2010 on the question. Basically, they've been they've been produced by these, uh, let's say, as a group, collectively, you could call them the Dalit organizations. Right. Right. So there are a variety of differently constituted Dalit organizations. Most sure. of them seem to have some kind of link with, um, you know, one branch or the other of the Christian churches. Sure. And so, in a sense, the way I've tended to view it is that they're they're a proxy for Christian church interests of different types. Okay. Right? And so they're the ones who began to produce these reports about from around the year, let's say, the middle of the two thousands. Okay. The middle of that decade. Um, and what's really interesting is that 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 pattern of producing reports coincides with discussions in the United Nations on caste discrimination. Now, those discussions were primarily uh, targeted at India and secondarily Nepal. Right. But gradually what happened, and again, this is around the middle of the same decade, uh, the uh, UN officials began to uh, point to the Indian diaspora, particularly in the United Kingdom and United States, uh, but also other places like Mauritius, uh, as having some kind of caste discrimination problem. And, and what's interesting is that they start to reference these reports which are being produced by Dalit organizations. Okay. Right? So right. now 
I, I, my argument has been that these the, the reports or the so-called studies which these Dalit organizations have produced, uh, they're not worth anything in terms of their research validity. Right. Uh, and they're pretty, pretty, pretty self-serving. So they, they'll take a series of anecdotes and present them as though there is some conclusive, you know, evidence of caste discrimination patterns, et cetera, et cetera. So I've tended to be fairly critical of them. And, and that goes for subsequent studies as well, which have tried to justify the legislation and so on. Right. Even, even at an official level, there's been studies. So, yeah, so that's the kind of long and short of it. So, so you get a coincidental uh, presence of activist organizations in Britain at mm-hmm. the NGO level. Right. And you get the supranational bodies at the UN human rights level, which seem to coordinate, seem, seem to be coordinated. And I'm pretty certain that they are, because actually what you'd see is that the NGOs at a, at a macro level, they, I mean, they have some macro organizations, which right. are also intervening on the same issues at UN level. So, okay. and, and in fact, what's interesting is that some broader studies have shown how uh, Christian transnational organizations, these kind of lobby organizations, have been very, very proficient at being able to influence the UN organs for various policy initiatives in order right. then to drive different or individual nation states into you know, complying with the demands of the UN human rights bodies and even beyond the human rights bodies, in fact. Um, right. So And so I think caste is actually just one instance of a much larger pattern if, if you want to look at it like that you know right and, and, and if i may i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna throw a, a couple i mean a couple questions here i, I mean there one way to look at this right it'd be the intent of these organizations it, it can either be uh for because they actually find some sort of injustice occurring and they want to correct it or secondarily it can be something of uh, and I think the book and Bala Gangadhar touches upon upon this in The Heathen and the Spineless and his other books and his works. The idea that over time the Western world has conceived of Hinduism and caste being almost synonymous. So the way to attack, especially for proselytization, to attack Hinduism is to attack caste. And you defeat caste and you can convert more people to wherever you want to do. So. I mean, I think those would be the two major kind of potential reasons for doing this. I mean, I don't know if there's a third or a fourth, but I, I think those seem to be kind of what's pref- kind of prevailing in my mind. Um, and based on what kind of how you're presenting it, I, I, I would I would gather that maybe it's a mix of both those reasons. Maybe there are some injustices they want to correct, but also for the larger uh, goal of spreading the gospel and conversion. Uh, I think you've joined the dots very well there, if I may say so. Um, okay, so there are two, you pointed out, let's say, at least two main factors there, right? Uh, the one major factor which lurks in the background is uh, how we think of Indian culture. And Indian culture is, if you like, more or less coterminous with uh, Hinduism. Right. Uh, at, as the dominant, if you like, influence of that culture, as, as we've, you know, uh, uh, that's a narrative that we've, we've received. Right. Um, uh, Hinduism as a caste system. And uh, of course, that story about Hinduism and the caste system has been entirely created by um, mainly the British, but with a strong European hand in it, European Christian hand in it. So, uh, you know, broadly, you can say caste is a construction uh, of uh, Orientalism. Right. Right. 
Right. And so, and of course, we see in our research program, we, by which I mean Balu's research program, under mm-hmm. under under whose influence we we tend to work. Uh, the 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 question of construction has to be spelled out very clearly right right uh what do we mean by construction by construction we don't mean necessarily that something which the orientalists have talked about and by oriental orientalists there's a whole collection of people there right but from missionaries colonial civil servants uh uh travelers merchants etc so there's there's a whole group set of contributors to what collectively we know as Orientalism today. But what's interesting is that at some point, let's say around the beginning of the 19th century, they began to concretize some idea that the dominant religion in India is Hinduism and Hinduism has a caste system, right? Uh, So there was a kind of convergence of uh, the huge mass uh, of information that Orientalism produced. And right. this this view of India seemed to concretize around that point, right? Now, right. it doesn't mean to say that, you know, they were thinking exactly about caste and caste system the way, if you like, scholars or social scientists would predominantly consider today. It's not right. exactly the same thing. Uh, but certainly, uh, if you like, the pro- uh, a fo- formation of some kind of prototypical image of caste uh, had already taken place around the turn of the... Uh, 18th and 19th century. Sure. Now, um, that subsequently seeps into uh, secular theorizing about India and its culture and society uh, to the extent that today what you have is the social sciences taking up those themes which were initially laid out and putting further flesh to them. So our uh, broader argument is that contemporary social sciences contained within them are basically orientalist and uh, or an orientalist construction which has no bearing on the reality of Indian culture and society. So by construction, what we mean is that, yes, these people have developed an idea, but that idea is based on their experience of Indian culture and society, right? So ideas like Hinduism and the caste system are experiential entities, as Balu says, right? They mm-hmm. are experiential entities which enable uh, a Westerners to go about in India and with Indians, right? So it, that is their way of making sense about what they encounter with India or in India. Right, right. It doesn't represent uh, the social reality or the cultural reality of India. Because what they've done in creating this experiential entity is bring together things that actually don't belong together within the Indian culture or uh-huh. society, right? So right. They've, they've, they've artificially, if you like, uh, in, in so constructing these ideas, uh, made links between different aspects of things that they have seen. And of course, those things are there. Many of them right. are there. Uh, and they've put them together and theorize and develop theories of, uh, about them as if they are real, right? But our argument yeah. has been that actually they, they have no corresponding reality uh, in Indian culture and society. And that goes as much for the caste system as it does for Hinduism, right? So actually there is a broader uh, problematization of both uh, experiential entities in Balu's research program. Which, which I think is fascinating because, I mean, right now I'm just thinking in my head, right? I spend quite a bit of time reading through psychological studies and research and taking part in um you know i don't know if you know who jonathan Haidt is 
Um, oh yes, I've just been reading yeah. one of his books. The, right, this, uh, the coddling, coddling, the of American coddling. Mind. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So he has his. Uh, uh, he he he. he puts a bunch of this data together, but I think he has this uh, site or someone else does where you can go and test your biases, right? Where you go in and they'll show you, uh, they use words like positive words, negative words, pictures of black people and white people. And then they do a mixed match to, to, to gauge your level of, I would say your uh, bias, right? Um, yes. And and I, 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 what I'm seeing is this almost correlation. Uh, I mean, this, 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 uh, not correlation, but a connection in how what you just described, right? As there's this conception of what people, let me put it in the American sense of race. There's this conception of what people think black people are or white people are. Um, yes. And then there's the reality of what they are. Um, yes. And the conception and the reality get so mixed up and mingled up that it like, ideas of goodness or laziness or this or that is connected, even though they're abstract concepts are connected to to ideas of race. And in yes. a similar way, I think what you're, I, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, is what you're saying is these, the Western concepts of however the West came to look at India and the reality of what India or Hindus were got so mix, mixed up and inter, interconnected that it created this sense of, Oh, we have this concept of caste in our head. Therefore, the reality must be there has to be a caste, as yeah. opposed to saying this is just our concepts of what is a system, and and this is how it is in India that may or may not play into our concepts. Yes, absolutely. So it becomes a kind of presupposition of all subsequent theorizing about India. Right. Right. Uh, and so yeah. that's the kind of role that these experiential entities have played. Uh, and you could say probably similar things for, uh, you know, uh, uh, issues like the Aryan invasion theory and uh, all, all kinds of other things, right? Uh, yeah. But what's important to underline here is that the connection between caste and Hinduism doesn't, is, is not coincidental. Because what happens is that we have to bring in the, f the figure of religion and the religion of Christianity and the way in which that becomes the kind of framework for making intelligible things that were encountered in uh, outside of Europe. So in this case, India, we are talking about, right? Right. Um, so, and the Protestant background of, particularly of the British, helped to concretize the idea of Hinduism, first of all, as a false religion sure. and as, as a religion of priesthood, uh, which was dominated by the priesthood, which, you know, the Brahmins, and so they were uh, supposed to, if you like, be purveying uh, false doctrines as though they were true doctrines. Now, that's a very important issue because what that does is underscore the fundamental immorality of Indian culture. Right. Right. So the kind right. of, the, you know, it's, it's not as though uh, Indians don't have moral norms. It's just that they, the, the norms that Indians have are... Um, pervade as though they're moral, but actually fundamentally they're immoral because they are part of a false religion, right? Now, right. so, and, so, and I, so I, I think this is what uh, Professor Gangadhar says in his chapter, which is yes. they, the, the Brahmins force people to act, believe that their morality is a true morality, but in fact they're act, forcing them to act in immoral ways. Yeah, actually in our book, uh, yeah. it's Jacob, Jacob Deruva who takes up that theme very strongly. Okay. So, so, uh, and he, in so, fact, he shows that there is a 
you see, the way in which priesthood and priestcraft and the false religion of the Indians is right. viewed, particularly by the Protestant missionaries, but not just the missionaries, right? All kinds of different writers with a Protestant background who talked about India in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, are drawing on the Protestant polemic against firstly Catholicism and secondly Judaism. Right. And it's that polemic which helps them to frame their idea of India and India's priestcraft in Hinduism, you know, as exemplified by Hinduism. Absolutely. And this is, um, and so I, I want to do a couple things. First, uh, we'll take it back to the point where you're talking about the 2013 change in the caste uh, in the British sense. So you can talk about your article, because I think now we see the connections that you've built. Um, into why and how kind of the book, the underlying underpinnings of the book. Um, yeah. and, and then, and, and I just want to uh, point out like uh, a note, you know, uh, this is similar to what um, Joy Deep and Vishwa Adaluri are doing when it comes to scholarship of Indology. They use uh, very similar ideas, I think of Balagangadhar, in the sense of um, the entire way that even the text of of Hinduism were approached was with this sense of Christian um, viewpoint of uh, first versus Catholicism and then Judaism and then somehow like the Brahmins fit into the priests of either Catholicism or Judaism that's why they're controlling evil and and not just a, 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 a I don't know if you read their work it's very similar but they take it from not in the perspective of sociology and um, you know current studies on uh, on caste, but more about like how the West approached the texts of India. Yes, yes. Um, I can't say that I'm very familiar with their work, but I'm somewhat familiar, uh, and I've, I've seen some I've, uh, some interviews uh, by the team and so on. Uh, sure. But I think there are very very interesting uh, meeting points between their their work and uh, Balu's research project. Absolutely. Uh, so I think there, there's room for some cross fertilization there that that still I'm still waiting for for you know to happen, uh, right. and you know eagerly awaiting <laughs> some very interesting dialogues on that. I'm front. sure it's going to happen. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. very yeah. soon, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, if we could take it back for a second to the 2013 um, reinforcement from the from the you know May uh, or to Shell. Um, Yes, sure. Or, or but do, do you do you mind? I, actually, I think I didn't. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just rewind a little bit because I didn't sure. complete. The, see, the, the because earlier we, we we talked about two factors. So the the yeah. first factor is this broader background of Orientalism and how it comes to influence contemporary social sciences. Right? Yes, and yeah. how caste and, and and not just caste, but an immoral caste system yeah. becomes a presupposition for the study of Indian culture and society, and that has been. Uh, of course, transplanted to the study of the Indian diaspora as well, more recently. So that, that's the first aspect. Now, so of course, Christianity has a fundamental framing role to play there, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in all kinds of ways, to the extent that ideas about caste in Hinduism become common sense notions uh, about India, right? Uh -huh. and, its, and its diaspora. It, they're so common sense that they actually don't need discussion. They're taken for granted assumptions. And I suppose when you get the average legislator in Britain, yeah, somebody in the House of Lords or House of Commons, 
uh, or the average lawyer who's going to be litigating cases on cost. Uh, they too would probably have this very uh, a very superficial notion of what India is about, what Indian culture and society are about, but they would be certain that there is a caste system and it's immoral, right? So that presupposition now becomes part of the general common sense assumptions, a kind of folk wisdom in the Western culture about India, right? Uh, and so that's very important to underline and the role that Christianity plays in that. So, th so that's in terms of how Christianity structures a way of thinking about another culture. Now, the second factor is also, and that's, this is the more contemporary f uh, issue which you also drew attention to already, which is uh, why would caste be introduced into a law in the United Kingdom in 2010, 2013? Why would that happen? Now, uh, and, and what's the connection uh, to the international level and what's the connection to India in particular, mm -hmm. right? And so this is where we have some hypotheses which I think could be defended. And so I'll spell them out. I'll try to spell them out for you. Um, so Britain, we think, is not a, a, a direct addressee of the problematization and activism around caste and the caste system. Actually, the more direct ad addressee is India. But so Britain comes to play a kind of proxy role in the larger fight with India about caste, caste system, and the place of Christians in the caste reservations, uh, proselytization, conversion, all of those intertwined debates, which are very live in India. Uh, get played out in a very oblique way in the British context and, in, and during the British caste debate. If that makes sense. It yeah, may not make sense, but I'm happy to elaborate on, on any element of that. Oh, but so, so, but oh. that's, the, that's the second governing factor, if you like, which you already hinted at, but I just wanted to underline. Sure. And, 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 and I, I, I totally understand your position, um, and, and I think it, it makes sense. Um, uh, Rachit, uh, who hasn't had, I've been very, very, uh, too much talking too much. Um, uh, Rachit, I, I'm sure you've had some comments, questions that you want to ask Professor Shah. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of uh, questions and comments, but luckily, Professor Shah, I think you've touched upon some of them, particularly the whole idea that this whole Christian framework of analysis of religion was applied to the religions and cultures of India and how everything was, tried, you know, was essentially standardized. Uh, and then also the fact that this historical critique of Catholicism and the, the Jewish tradition was then kind of taken wholesale and applied to the analysis of India. So I'm happy you brought that up. It's, it's, it's also very interesting to me, and I'd like you to talk a little more about this, that you know, Britain seems to have played a central role in the creation of this modern concept of caste and, and also its propagation into modern times with this Equality Act being passed in 2013. And I find it very interesting, you know, I kind of hark back to a video I saw of some parliamentarian talking about the inequities of caste and, and how, you know, this is so wrong in India. When I look at British society itself, I mean, it seems like a very caste-based society to me because, you know, in essence, what I see when I look at it is a German monarchy, a Norman aristocracy, an Anglo-Saxon sort of middle class and a Celtic underclass. Uh, I don't know if anyone's taught or talked about, you know, British society in this way. But I like you know, um, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. yeah so uh, I, I think, uh, yes, Rajit, that's, people have tried to make 
like a similar point. I mean, certainly it's it's most immediate when uh, you hear some of the Hindu spokespersons in Britain uh, defending or or, or 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 trying to stave off, if you like, the prospect of uh, the law on caste discrimination in Britain. You know, they've tended to say, well, you know, Britain should rather more worry about its own class system than worry about, you know, an insignificant uh, or is, and certainly it not non-proven alleged problem uh, of caste discrimination. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's been... Um, that's been pointed out, <laughs> certainly. <Right. laughs> yeah. Well, but to be honest, I mean, I I, I can see its sort of uh, rhetorical value, uh, but I'm not sure if you'd want to take it any further than that, than that, because you'd start to encounter some problems. So one of the problems that you'd encounter is, you see, when we talk about class, we don't think about it as fundamentally immoral. I mean, some people might, Marxists might do, you know, or people of leftist orientation, they might say, well, you know, the class is a fundamentally immoral uh, institution. But broadly speaking, in the Western culture, we don't think about it like that, right? So it's not as though, you know, we, we would say Western culture or certainly British culture has a class system. Uh, and that means that British people are fundamentally immoral. We wouldn't think like that. But it, for India, we think that. Right. right. And so that's why it's very important to get this connection between Christianity and the construction of the caste system, because without that and, and Protestantism in particular, without that link or, or that structural link, uh, we wouldn't get the presupposition that Indian social structure, as the West has seen it, is fundamentally immoral. Right. Why is it immoral? Because it instructs people to act immorally. There is, you know, it's based on a set of commands which instruct in Indians to act immorally. And so that fundamentally, you, we have to make that fundamental distinction between the way in which we think about the caste system and the way we think about the class system in a country right. like Britain. You know, and, and I, I, of course, I've, I've, I've made myself blue in the face trying to discuss <laughs> this issue with my Hindu in, in, in interlocutors in Britain, <laughs> but it doesn't. It doesn't get beyond a certain because you see the, the at the end of the day there's also the problem of research like how do you research this for most Indians even in the diaspora if you suggest to them that there is such a thing as caste system they wouldn't say this is simply a matter of imagination right or simply a matter of construction by Protestants Protestant British people sometime in the past which has just acquired a kind of common sense in the Western culture they wouldn't be able to say that. The only reason I'm able to say that is because of the kind of background work that's been ha that's happened within the research program of Balu, right? Uh, so that's why I'm, I, I was saying earlier that it's so important for me to have been acquainted with that the, the results of that research program uh, to be able to mount a fundamental critique of the way in which we are talking about caste today. Great. No, thank thank you for that. That, that definitely help, definitely helps clarify it. You know, uh, the reason why I brought that sort of criticism up is because I put a, generally put a different flavor to it. I try to point to the fact that, you know, there is sort of ethno-racial undertones to the various divisions of British society. And I found that they've tried to extend that, you know, this whole Aryan invasion theory to India and try to justify that the different groups, you know, belong to, to different sort of uh, racial uh, origins. So, you know, that, that angle I haven't seen before. And, and, and the reason I bring that up again is into, you know, indulging sort of a two-quoke argument or, you know, 
of whataboutism. It was just sort of more to point out that, you know, such systems exist elsewhere and how is the Jati environment system in India, and I think you talk about this in your book somewhere, you know, different from other birth-based systems of social division elsewhere. Yeah. Well, see, this, this uh, in a way, you're touching on something very interesting, which is, was there a template which the Europeans would have used when they were looking at India? Uh, one suggestion comes from, in, 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 in the present case, from Jacob de Rouva's chapter, right, where, where he talks about the construction of Hinduism and, and the associated immorality of the caste system and so on, right? Uh, by reference to the polemic with the Catholics and the Jews. Uh, so in, in a way that supplies one segment of the template <laughs> or one part of the template. Uh, but your question suggests that maybe there was another template, which is actually the systems of classification, right? Which may or may not have a, had a social reality, right? But if we look at, for example, the, the pre, the, uh, pre-Reformation social order as the Catholics would have had had this understand society was divided into, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so probably they, they would have talked about a number of orders, maybe four or five basic orders within society. Is that something that goes into how Europeans subsequently ended up looking at India? Absolutely. Right? So what was the template that was used which allowed and helped the, the, the Europeans to start classifying uh, India and also thinking that their classification actually has some intuitive appeal. Now, where does that intuitive appeal come from? Surely the background must be in, the, in their own culture. Absolutely. And what are they drawing on, right? So there, there, there are all kinds of questions like this, which I'm afraid, I mean, certainly I'm not in a position to answer, but I'm not really sure if we've done the required research right. uh, to be able to answer. But I think it's, as a heuristic, it's a very, very interesting suggestion. Right. And so, you know, the reason I raised this is because I felt that this research hasn't been done. And it's, it's, it's sort of telling to hear from you, too, that maybe the groundwork hasn't been done. It's yeah. very interesting to ask these kind of uh, questions yes, in yes. the sociological lens, you know, back in Britain. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Roger, hey, you got so anything so else uh, to follow uh, up? No, not in relation to what we've been talking about so far. Thank you. OK, so uh, Professor Shah. Um, 2013, the, the law changed to force Britain or the government to prosecute caste as, uh, as one of the discriminatory categories. What, what happened from that? Okay, so, okay, uh, if I can just introduce one or two points of clarification. The sure. Equality Act that we have in Britain is a civil law so it's it's more it's it's, it's in fact it's modeling is is based on the civil rights act in, in it's in like the, employment in the united states standard, exactly right? well so i suppose civil rights act is more uh, concerned with employment type situations but in britain we also have um the anti-discrimination law applied to let's say the provision of goods and services membership of professions etc etc sure, it's some sure. it's i think it's somewhat wider it also applies to educational institutions and yeah, under same, more recent reforms is it yeah, like okay, title right. nine yeah title title, nine. oh yes yes okay right. yeah it, it, so we have so many uh different subsequent different parts of yeah yeah yeah. So anyway, so these laws have tended to sort of develop right over, over a period of time. But so where we are today is that it's still uh, the equality legislation or the anti-discrimination legislation is still uh, premised on um, 
uh, on uh, civil law understanding. So it's mm -hmm. basically it basically allows you to bring civil actions in damages and other related you know remedies. Uh, it, it's not criminal legislation. However, right. uh, our argument is that as as things have developed subsequently, uh, the the problem of criminalizing caste has seeped into the law, right? And it's right. it's happened in a very surreptitious way. But I think for that we have to go to something like 2018, <laughs> okay. right? So, but we're only in 2013 right now. So. Right. Okay, so in 2013, what happens is that the uh, state is obliged to let, to implement caste as an aspect of race for the purpose of the equality law, right? right. So uh, if that happens, which actually it hasn't happened yet, the, um, uh, you know, individuals would be entitled to bring actions in, uh, in, uh, in under the discrimination law for caste discrimination as well. Sure. Right? And claim damages, etc. Now, that was the intent of the law, but it's never, it hasn't panned out like that. Now, all kinds of political configurations have changed since, since 2013, right? Now, we used to have a coalition government between the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. Uh, that's changed to a majority Conservative government. Then there's a kind of, you know, uh, the Conservative government as the largest party, but without an overall majority. So you've got very, a very complicated political configuration right now. And not to mention Brexit and all of that sort of stuff. Right. Um, but because of those changing circumstances uh, since 2013, what's happened is that, first of all, uh, the government has been able to be uh, firmer in its view that it doesn't want to see this legislation, right? This current government has said that it doesn't want to see this legislation. Uh, and it was sort of, it claims that it was cornered into agreeing to an obligation to implement the, you know, cause for the purpose of the Equality Act uh, because of uh, political pressure from, from, uh, from other, other parts of the political configuration. So today's government seems to say that we don't want this legislation. Now, in the meantime, something else has happened. There was a test case, uh, which, was, which I think was engineered in 2014-2015. Now, that case went through the courts, and the argument in that case was despite the non-implementation of caste as an aspect of race, can we still say that via the uh, notion of ethnic group membership in the Equality Act, which already exists in the Equality Act, it's already expressed and it's part of the law, can we say that uh, caste is already included, right? Or if, to put it in a different way, does ethnicity, which already extends to descent, does it also extend to caste? And the decision from the courts was that, yes, it does, right? And that, that was a decision around 2014, 2015. It went through the courts up and down for a while, for somewhat longer than a year. So that's why I'm saying 2014, 2015. So by that time, by 2015, it was established that actually, even without implementing the existing obligation, what you have is the, uh, uh, the provision on race extends to caste. That, that, that was an agreement. The, 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 the courts basically agreed to that view, right, to that right. contention. So now the government actually, we think, also silently colluded in this development because what it does is it allows them to not implement the legislative obligation but allow the case law to, uh, to, ex to basically continue on the, on, the, on the books as a precedent, which allows those people who've been arguing for 
uh, a caste discrimination law to be enacted in Britain to be basically told that, look, there is, there is already a caste discrimination law. We don't need to implement the legislation. The case law is moved on. Um, so that's where we are at the moment. And in fact, in 2018, the government announced the results of its own consultation on the caste discrimination law and said that, well, actually, what we decided after the consultation is that we'll let the case law exist on the case books and we won't implement the legislation. And as far as the, the exist, still existing legislative duty is concerned, we're going to pass new legislation to delete that, right? So all you'll have in the future is the case law. And if people want to bring actions on the basis of cost discrimination, they've got ample case law, they can do it through the courts already, right? So we don't need this law. So, so th that's where we are at the moment, so, more or less. So what they've done is basically equated caste to race. And, and if, I, if I'm... If I'm correct in this, it's partially due to, and, and this goes back to what you er, you earlier said with Ratchet, is <clears throat> that because of the the various ways it conceived of our invasion potentially, it's like these rate these communities of caste that exist today are somehow racially determined by the structure of the Indian system already. Uh, yes, in, in, in some way, yeah. It's actually not very, very clear even what the judges think. You know, so when you look at the, the detail of the judgment, one of the things that the judges admit is that oh, uh, nobody knows how to define caste. There is no agreeable, agreed to sociological definition of caste, right? So everybody's kind of playing this, this, this game of emperor without clothes, right? That everybody sort of agrees politically and legally that we need a caste, you know, law against caste discrimination, and you know we should have one. And the law is the current law is adequate to, to provide that because we have established case law. But once you go deeper, you realize that they th these guys don't even know how to define caste because you can't define caste, right? right. Uh, you it, 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 the caste is inherently problematic as a conception, right? So once you start to apply it to the reality of Indian society, whether it's in the diaspora or, or you know, in India itself, uh, the whole thing breaks down. And that's exactly what the census uh, takers found, right? In the late, right. late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, there were so many, there was a report after report of British colonial officials saying uh, that, look, you know, we're, we're trying to fit our conception of caste onto these, these people, but it actually doesn't fit. And the way in which we've allocated different groups to different people is actually completely inc internally inconsistent, right? So they went, they, they went ahead with the, uh, with the exercise thinking that, oh, uh, you know, that we, we have some kind of, at least some coherent scholastic notion of caste. Right. But when, when you try to apply it to the ground, it completely breaks down, right? Yeah, uh, and I think, was it your, your introduction or was it Abalaganga there's that talks about this particularly, about the... The notion that uh, you couldn't determine it by birth, you couldn't determine it by endogamy, you couldn't determine it by um, yes, yes, like yes. Uh, occupation, yes. um, and there's so any criteria that they put to it was not able to figure out what a particular caste, what exactly. what a what community was. Was it based exactly. on this? Was it based on that? You couldn't figure it out. Now, I guess my question to you would then be is, and and this is kind of both. Uh, a very honest question, but I also want to push it a little, is 
Are there any other um, sociological studies done, I mean, maybe you know or don't know, in other groups or um, in other uh, cultures in which such a, a idea of caste is there and is actually definable? It's, it's a very hard question to answer because, you see, I'm not sure if the answer to the question would have to accept that the conceptualization of caste in relation to India is a, a, both a coherent and a defensible one. Because if that's our primary reference point for understanding what a caste system is, then we would have to accept that actually we don't know what caste system is, right? Because right. I mean, you imagine all the, I mean, the, the we've just referenced all the problems that the all you know census takers of the nineteenth twentieth centuries and even you know the, the census takers of of the contemporary census in India, right? Uh, they all have problems in applying their conception of caste to the ground reality in India, and the right. same is true of the British lawmakers here, including the judges. Right. Actually, and they've admitted as much, <laughs> you know, even academics who have supported the provision on caste discrimination in Britain have admitted that they don't know how. In fact, the judge actually quotes one of those academics. Right. To yeah. when, when she says that actually we, there is no agreed sociological definition or anthropological definition of caste. So. Then, so the question yes. is that then how can you if you can't there's no definition of it, then what are we even talking about? Yeah that we have no coherent conceptualization of it. And so I suppose one option is you do what some of the academics who tried to justify the caste law here did, which, which is what, what, you know, they were commissioned by our Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is our national equalities body, right. to conduct a study of, uh, as to the viability of the, the legislation as it then was. Mm -hmm. And they came up with this idea that, well, you know what we should do? We should conceptualize caste in, an, in as elastic a way as possible, which is basically an admission that we, we don't anything know what goes. caste is. Yeah, anything, yeah, exactly. Thank you. So that's the natural consequence of this kind of attitude, which is that you just pick a kind of pet theory you have, you know, and that's based on basically on personal preference rather than scientific validity. Right. And you just go go around uh, advocating that, you know, advocating its implementation or application or whatever. And you can imagine all kinds of rubbish that will happen in future in the courts in Britain, right? Right. Uh, once I, that kind of attitude takes takes root, which it already has in a way. Right. Which, which I mean, Rajat, do you have anything to uh, add to what I said? Or, uh, well, yeah, just, just I, I guess a... Uh, a a couple of questions and something to add to discussion. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I find all this very interesting. Uh, I want to play devil's advocate for a second. So, you know, sure. we're saying that, you know, because our, our discussion kind of tur is turning a bit Socratic right now in the sense that, you know, we're digging into what a word really means and then we're saying it doesn't mean anything. But let's go back to the social realities. Like, ostensibly, this whole debate, current debate about cost is so that we can address certain social issues that are happening in India, you know, the experience of violence uh, by certain groups, uh, or at, I mean, at least it's alleged. Uh, I know that, you know, the data has been analyzed and there's all kinds of interesting results that have come out of it. But uh, going back to that, right, so if we can't define caste, I mean, there's no real definition of caste, but then going back to the ground reality of what pe people are experiencing, there's something that they're experiencing, the, there's an uh, uh, iniquity over there. And so how do we identify and address that? 
Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, let's assume that some violence takes place in a country like India. Right. Right. Certainly. I mean, that nobody would 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 gainsay a, a, a statement like that. Now, in India, what we have uh, is a very specific legislation which says that a, a set of listed groups. Right. So in India, there's no there's no real effort to even go into the definition of caste and try to conceptualize it and so on. So in Indian legislators have taken the, the short way out, which is to say, OK, are you a member of this group? If you're a member of this group, then this particular legis- legislation applies to you, whether it's uh, reservations legislation. So, uh, you know, access to quotas for university places, jobs, etc. Um, or it's criminal law legislation, right, which says that if you're a member of one of these groups and you've been affected by a member of a group which is not one of these groups, uh, we may deign to classify what you've experienced as a caste atrocity, right? So there, in fact, that what that legislation does is that it creates a list of presumed victims, mm-hmm. right? Which in, in any Western country would be impossible to imagine. Absolutely. Although Western law is moving in that direction anyway, <laughs> but but still. Uh, in, on, on all kinds of other bases, but, but let's leave that aside for the moment. Uh, right, so in India, what you have is the caste atrocities legislation of 1989, which was st- strengthened more recently in 2015, 2016, um, creates this, you know, it establishes a list of presumed victims or presumptive victims, where only if you belong to a certain group can you say that a crime has been committed against me or this specific type of crime has been committed against me. Now, let's leave all that aside, right? So, because the basic point here is that Indian law circumvents the problem of conceptualizing caste by simply listing groups of people. And those lists, interestingly enough, are based on colonial legislation in which we need to do more research. Like we need to trace the trajectory of how that came to be. Uh, Because as far as I'm aware, there isn't a proper study done on that you know, the transition between the colonial to the post-colonial. Um, but certainly these these groups are, are already listed under one of the constitutional orders in, uh, you know, for back from 1950. So there's a very close timeline between the colonial period and the post-colonial. Right. Um, now, let's take up the challenge of addressing the claim that certain groups are disproportionately ex, uh, exposed to violence, let's say, or, or crimes in India. And that exposure is uh, related or, yeah, is related or even is dependent upon their membership of a particular caste group or, or a set of caste groups. True or false? Um, my co-editors who also co-write a chapter in the book say that if we look at the national crime statistics in India, which spells out actually what members of scheduled castes and scheduled tribes, the, the, the number of instances of reported crimes they are exposed to, at least by way of self-reporting, right? right. Um, you'd be able to show the level of exposure of these groups to uh, criminal activity uh, as victims. Astonishingly, I mean, I, I was certainly astonished when I read, <laughs> read their chapter. Uh, they find that the official criminal 
records, statistics in India show that members or the, of this group as a class, because there, there are multiple, let's say, jatis who are listed as scheduled castes or scheduled tribes, are disproportionately less likely to face crimes. It's quite interesting. Less likely than the rest of the population. Right? Now, that's astonishing. So yeah. what happens, and they go further in, the, the chapter is extremely interesting because what they say is that, well, that's the hard picture, right? That's the picture that, you, the hard picture that you can derive from the statistical figures, the pub, which are publicly available. They also say that most academics well, and, and activists as well, who work for NGOs and so on in India, uh, tend to rely less on the hard figures and more on supposition and anecdote, yes. right? So they produce, as, as the British... NGOs have done, right? They produce uh, stories about victimization, et cetera, et cetera. And then they make sense of those stories by reference to the caste system. So as, as, you know, as with what's happening in Britain, where you have the caste system stories circulating in the background, not being questioned, you also have the caste system story circulating in India by, in the background, right? Which is then allocated the work of making sense to the individual anecdotes, right? And that's how academics and NGO actors in India have basically produced a picture of a disproportionate exposure of certain members of certain groups to crime in India. But they, they, there's, not, there's nothing solid behind that. It's just a colonially constructed or Christian stroke colonially constructed conception of the caste system, which is actually doing the work, right? Absolutely. Their stories or their data doesn't doesn't disprove or prove the existence of the caste system, or uh, exposure of certain groups to violence or crimes because of the existence of that. Right. So, so I mean, you know, it's pre again it's presupposed rather than proved. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just an axiom in, instead of having a, like an actual empirical data. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and and Thank me, you know, so my day job is as a data scientist. So you know, I find oh, this very right. interesting that there's not a driven approach to, you know, sort of finding reasons for this. And, and and you know, you raise a really interesting point in terms of you know they're them relying on anecdotal evidence and sort of presupposing certain victim groups, and by extension, also presupposing certain perpetrators, right? So I've I've seen some reporting in India, for example, there was one event that happened in Maharashtra many years ago, I remember, and the headline read "Upper Caste, uh, you know, group attacks a belt." When I dug into that article, it didn't say much, but I found other articles. I actually found out that the community that attacked the poor Dalit was, in fact, from an OBC community, right? Yes. So what, what happens by extension is by reporting a certain way, the image that's conjured in someone's mind is a group of Brahmins or, you know, Kshatriyas or whoever else going and, you know, beating somebody up. Now, again, I, you know, this is well known that in parts of the country, like UP and Bihar, where Brahminical groups have, uh, you know, social dominance, that they are indeed part of the perpetrators of the crimes, although you will find, you know, OBC communities and so on also indulging in them. But there's a supposition that this is the case all over the country, while, you know, the historical reality is that, you know, uh, these groups, the Brahmins, uh, didn't hold that much sociological power, sort of social power all over the country. There were certain pockets, yes, but every region has its own social dynamic uh, that, you know, put different people in, in positions of power. So, you know, that, that I just find very interesting. I, I just want to, I want to jump on that and just bring up another point. And I think like uh, Professor Shah, what you indicated is from what uh, Sufia Pathan and 
uh, Duncan, uh, Jelki, uh, that's right. their stuff. That's right? right. So that's right. And, and I think the interest and the point that really struck out to me is by having this overarching notion of, of a caste system or even caste violence, what we're doing is kind of putting a bomb on trying to actually do a deep dive into figuring out why communities are are loggerheads with each other. We're 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 very comfortable saying, oh, it's just caste violence. This is just how communities are. Uh, these uh, or or this uh, particular caste is to other castes, as opposed to saying, what are what is the underlying issue that's causing communities to 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 have such friction and and resort to violence? Maybe it's a tribal nature of some sort of historical um, uh, contention between the the two groups, just like Ratchet said about uh, politics of power between two people that are already maybe economically oppressed or uh, marginalized or some other way, right? Not necessarily based upon some sort of hegemony of up of quote unquote upper caste putting their boot down on lower caste. This is maybe an issue of of something else, and and I think what we're losing in 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 having just this this boogeyman of caste sitting above everybody, everything else is no need to actually do any more like truly investigative journalism or true empirical research and kind of just assigning it all to the boogeyman. Yes, absolutely. I'd agree with that. Uh, so caste becomes one of the meta explanation for social conflict in India. Uh, the other one, of course, is religion, right? Um, yeah. So and both of them seem to play this role where insofar as they they act as um, a kind of not just a meta explanation, but which one which is uh, regularly presupposed as the explanation for, you know, how Indians act (laughs) towards each other. Um, And yeah, I would agree. Yeah, that that's also perhaps had the effect of displacing uh, efforts to generate a much uh, better understanding of what's how Indian society actually ticks and how conflict works in India, you know, and why it happens. Yeah, absolutely, I would, I would agree with that. So, so one of the things that these kind of studies are, are doing is inspiring us to dig deeper, right? Because they they're certainly pointing to the fact that our available explanations are not working, right? They're actually not even worth the paper that they're written on because, you know, they're so full of uh, you know, unscientific assumptions, basically. Yeah, it appears to me a lot of this is 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 a house of cards built on a foundation of clouds, right? It, it's it's very much like the sense of let's just build theories upon this theory that has, to be honest, no credible. You can't define it, so you don't even know what it is. And on top of it, you're just assuming it exists without having any sense of how it exists and so it, it just it, it, it strikes me as a very easy explanation to avoid doing work. I mean, yes. and, and uh, well, uh, you see, but, there, there are so, sorry to interrupt. I'll just quickly jump in if I may. Uh, yeah, absolutely. See, uh, uh, as as my interlocutors today, uh, see, you 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 seem to have uh, uh, an openness to exploring these ideas, but. So you, you might you, we we might say we might agree among the three of us that yes yeah, certainly these are house of cards but if you look at the dominant patterns uh, occurring in academia and in you know in the NGO world and in the yeah. international 
let's say, the, the, the international United Nations fears and so on. Uh, this is not how they think, right? So despite the existence of these critiques, which have been around for, let's say, a short while, right? Yeah. Uh, Balu's hypothesis about religion, like India not having any religion and certainly not there being, you know, n- nothing like Hinduism in existence, has yeah. been around for decades now. At least three yeah. decades it's been around, <clears throat> right? Ha- have we fundamentally changed our conception of India, let's say, with respect to Hinduism and religion? We haven't, right? So we might agree among ourselves that this is definitely, you know, these are based, definitely house, houses of cards, or a house, one big house of cards. Yeah. Um, but what is it that allows the dominant theoretical frameworks to persist well, had it been ordinary science you might say yeah. well i mean okay even ordinary science has has to experience paradigm shifts and so on right sure. so it's not not as though established scientific theories and their proponents would simply give way no in the social science and particularly the study of india which balu has tried to challenge in a very fundamental way we've got such a massive amount of work to do still, right? Because somehow there is a kind of stasis. We, and I don't know if you can simply explain it by the available theories of, uh, you know, the philosophers and the historians of science. No. Can you do that? I don't know. I mean, it's an open question well, for I all mean, of us. I, I tend to, uh, one of the things I, and this is, I think, and, and Rajat probably can chime in after after me, but... One of my one of my feelings and intuitions about this is that there is this sense of, and it kind of connects to what you were talking about earlier, is there's this experience that people have of of India, of whatever, of caste, of this and that, and that because because it is so difficult to to delve into, you know, thousands of years of history or even communal history between. Uh, groups within a region or area, there is a dissonance for them from this experience to have an explanatory framework that actually can explain it, that uh, that when you attack the idea of caste, what you're what happens is you're attacking their experience. and when and and people when they get attacked for their experience or, their conception of whatever that experience is like, for example, like a Westerner that has no sense of of what the, the workings of India are, but are so sure that caste must exist and these this violence must be based on caste because they get it from, you know, third parties or they hear it from somebody else. You're attacking their entire framework for their own existence. And once that happens, there's this reactionary, uh, I think, psychological impulse to to rigorously defend it despite all evidence to the contrary and i think that's kind of what's happening right now and this is not just in caste but i think generally in this modern movement of towards extreme leftism and i know the 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 term cultural marxism is is a a persona non grata amongst academia in some sense (laughs) but i think there's this uh this underlying current there that everything has to be explained in some sort of power dynamic hierarchy oppression because it validates people's narratives about about where they are why they are there and then it, it gives you a sense of an of, of an out of of saying you know it I, I didn't do well because of the institution of xyz 
as opposed to saying, well, I'm sure there's some reality to that. There, the world is way too complex to have a, a, a univariate like response or explanation. It's multivariate. And I think in this sense, caste has become that overarching univariate response, caste or religion, to explain India. And to attack that basis, any of these bases, is to fundamentally attack experiences that are both real and perceived. So uh, l- let me try to reformulate what I think um, is important in what you're saying, which is that the the trend, in particularly in social sciences and humanities today, the dominant yeah. trend even in the West, and in fact led by the West, is towards uh, greater, not less, but greater skepticism towards the way in which uh, natural scientists would formulate problems. Yes. And so we're moving further and further away from scientifically oriented explanations in the so-called social sciences. And that makes our job in terms of understanding or studying a culture like India even more difficult. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. We, we simply don't appear to have the kind of traction which you would expect if we were, we were doing natural sciences. I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think you've, you captured it perfectly. Rachid, do you have anything to add to this? Because I think I, you probably do. Uh, yeah, it was interesting, you know, I mean, have, have, being someone who's actually has an academic grounding in uh, the natural sciences and social yeah. science, having studied humanities, you know, I found yeah. Yeah. these studies have, have really informed me where, where you know, where initially I had a view of, uh, of you know, science just being, the, you know, the, the absolute most rational way of looking at the world. My studies of the humanities, especially philosophers of science, made me reassess that and you know, realize <laughs> the paradigm shift over time. And, and yes, you know, there there is a sense of, uh, I mean, a a lack of finality to this, but in some sense, this is the best we can do. At the same time, this whole movement towards, you know, sort of uh, epistemological anarchism in the humanities, I also find very funny because it's like, you know, then you're you're basically getting to a point where anything goes and you can say anything and get away with it. And there's not one agreed upon standard to look at the world around us. And so, you know, this, it's, it's a very interesting situation. Yes, but what do you what do you make of our uh, ability to make sense of a culture like India? Then does that does it get more obscure and in a way worse, or do you see some light at the end of the tunnel? Okay, and I do see some light, but uh, so let let me put it this way: from the Western perspective, what's happening in Western scholarship is again, you know, we're, we're moving away from this grounding in you know sort of a more scientific method to exploration. So we have a diversity of uh, method and uh, and world we used to look at uh, cultures like India, which already is so complex. And so, you know, people can take their own biases and their, their own agenda and, and uh, uh, apply it to their research program and scholarship to say what they want. At the same time, what I see happening on the other end of the spectrum in India, you know, on the, the observed native mind is that there, there's been a colonization of mind over the past couple hundred years. You know, I, I see that a, a death of the of sort of an indigenous humanities and a classical studies culture in India. You know, we don't yes. have, a, I mean, I actually went to school over there until 12th grade. So I've seen this firsthand. Uh, yes. You know, there's not a culture of critical thinking. You know, there's this whole idea of received wisdom is, uh, is you know, what we have to rely on and authority figures. 
And yes. so it's moved away from religious texts and religious figures to more sort of, you know, uh, current scholars, right? So there's always an argument on, uh, you know, to authority where, hey, such and such, Sashi Thirur said this, and so it must be true. He's so articulate and he knows what he's talking about. So, you know, we in, in India, people don't really uh, analyze uh, the ideas that they received. You know, the one experience I had was this, uh, this whole idea of, again, the, the uh, Aryan invasion, where this is such an ingrained idea in people's uh, heads where, you know... Uh, you know, we have to start, start having a conversation about this and, you know, again, put the evidence in front of them. Hey, we can't really say anything about this. They're shocked. They're like, well, this is what we read in our history books. We assume that, you know, this is true. Now, in, in terms of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, I just, you know, I'm fundamentally a person who likes to look at the world from a pluralistic point of view. So that's why I've studied various academic disciplines. And, uh, and you know, I, I find that idea, you know, quite, quite joyous that, yes, this world, when we look at it from different sort of lenses, you know, it's the, again, the blind men and the elephant parable, that we can come up with different views of the world, each of them saying something about the world, but each of them uh, not uh, authoritative. And so, you know, that's how diversity of views and get a more holistic picture of uh, looking at the world. And, and, I th and I think just to touch on what, what Rachid said here, uh, I think, is it Marianne Kepins that yes. wrote about the yeah. Aryan invasion? And, yes. And, and yeah. <laughs> And, and I think it's really interesting because, um, I mean, to be honest, like we've had a few podcasts and over the course of a few podcasts, this idea of our innovation keeps popping up. And, yes. and, and it's and I think it's and people like to throw it into the dustbin and, and say, you know, like, oh, it's just a theory it's just it's, it, or it's out there. You know, um, it doesn't really matter to day to day lives. Yeah, I, I think in some sense that's true, but in another sense it's wrong because, like, as uh, uh, Professor uh, Kippins points out, it actually undergirds the entire framework of how Indians view their own selves in yeah. in, in in some sense, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it is yeah. a very very much like, for example, like this entire the Dravidian movement in the South and Tamil Nadu is yeah. entirely based upon this theory, the idea of these Adivasis and this community and yeah. that community is yeah. all based on this idea that somehow they were indigenous and everyone else or oh, these these upper castes were not and they were light-skinned and and these and the natives were dark it, it's it's it, when you look at the the not only the the evidence for any of these things whether it's uh linguistic archaeological archaeological or genetics or whatever nothing aligns and the difficulty yeah. is None of this stuff aligns, but yet we talk about these things as if they're a fundamental fact of nature. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, the facts about Indian society. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. And what's interesting about Marion Kepin's chapter is that she um, shows how uh, the Aryan invasion theory hasn't just been instrumental in this Dravidian uh, Aryan divide story, but also the caste system story. The, the Aryan invasion theory actually supplied a kind of adjunct to the dominant story of the caste system. And the other interesting thing I suppose, I suppose to, to uh, take away from, from that chapter is how the notion of the Aryan invasion finds expression as a series of stray comments among uh, pre-20th century Orientalists, which somehow get the air or attain, you know, acquire the air of a serious hypothesis about India. Yeah. 
Now, how yeah. does that happen? You know, it's a bit. It's actually a bit like the caste system story, right? The the the, the strongest account of the of, of accounts of the uh, early uh, the earliest and strongest accounts of the caste system and its immorality are actually to be found in Protestant missionary writing. Yeah, and yet these things have now become common sense social science ideas about Indian culture and society. How does that happen? You know. As though, you know, so, so in, in the first place, and in fact, in fact, even you could argue also for the Aryan invasion theory, right? A theological account becomes a kind of meta-theoretical account of, about how Indian, Indian uh, culture and society functions. Yeah, yeah. And, and she brings this up with the Purusha system, right? About the idea of, yeah. uh, you know, the Brahmanas from uh, the head, Kshatriyas from the shoulders, Vaishyas from the thighs and the shudras from the legs. And normally it's been depict, depicted as being like this hierarchical system. And she actually makes a point, and, and actually most people that have done um, the tradition and the practice make the point, and not, not the scholars who have never done uh, yajna or understand how that stuff works, but the human male, the purusha, is laid on the ground, like flat, right? Yeah. It's a sense yeah. of, e e even if you assume such a thing as the the four varnas yeah. are uh, engraved and fundamentally part of the Vedic system. Yeah. There's no hierarchy present, at least in that layer, right? Because the, the Purusha is laid on the ground and, and each of them are equal position from the ground. And Well, this and, and, is and, a very... Yeah, sorry, please, please continue. And, and, and the second thing is, and a lot of people just bring that, that one line up in the Purusha, so they don't follow it up with the second line that comes after that, which says, you know, uh, 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 the Surya comes from the eyes, the Chandra comes from the mouth, Indra and Agni, like all the other deities are also connected to the Purusha's body. So are you telling me now Prithvi, who is Earth, who is the feet of Purusha, and, and the Shudra, who is also the feet of the Purusha, they're both like somehow degraded? Where in the text itself, Prithvi or Earth is the mother of everything, is, is so highly lauded. Um, and, and this is the difficulty is there's selective reading of the text to buttress uh, an idea to, to show how a religion is fundamentally hierarchical from the get-go. And I think that is such a terrible way to view our, 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 our literature. In, 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 and this is come, all these views come from very strong Protestants and Christians and, and, and missionaries that come from this. this, yeah. this Yes. And, and I think Ratchet might have something to add to this too, you know, because I mean, both of us were pretty, we read a lot of the, we both know Sanskrit and we read quite a bit of the ancient texts and we have our own practices. Um, but yeah, Ratchet, go ahead. I know you have something to say. No, I, I think you basically said what I was going to say about that connection again with Prithvi coming from the feet and it's lauded, you know, so highly that, you know, that doesn't make sense. You know, if we're going to apply it to, uh, you know, the, the social divisions of humanity, why not apply it to these, you know, to divinity? So, you know, I, I do find that very interesting. And as someone who chants the Purusha Sukta very regularly, you know, having studied a little bit and the commentary on it. I, I, I mean, I again find, you know, the, this, uh, the pattern that the early scholars, uh, you know, used to, to study that text and, and uh, uh, other related uh, Sanskritic texts to be, to be very interesting and fundamentally misinformed. I mean, you know, to me, it's, it's again, they, they had a clear agenda and, and they applied their own framework instead of actually looking at, hey, what do the indigenous people who actually use this stuff say about it? What, do the, what does the commentarial tradition say about this and how do they, you know, go ahead with their interpretation? 
So uh, you know, it's it's very interesting, and 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 I I, I think this conversation yes. has informed that discussion. Yeah. Well, you see, I mean, there's there's several things in what you've said. I mean, to some extent, you're on difficult terrain if you want to reference back to what the in, in indigenous purveyors of the tradition say because right. you see they they're also the certain amount of care is going to have to be exercised but going back to the initial point uh and and the main point i think well the main thing that one should take away from our conversation is that how the prevailing this 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 meta theoretical uh uh uh, 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 uh specter of the caste system uh, and in the background, you know, this India's false religion and so on, how that has worked to fundamentally distort uh, the most visible evidence from the tradition, which is the textual tradition, right? Uh, and and, and, and pres presumably the most evocative aspects yeah. of, the, of that tradition has been completely distorted as a consequence of the prevailing background frameworks. Yeah, and I don't think that's the, that's on, not only to do with the Purusha Shukta. It's I think it's 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 fundamentally affecting the reading of the entire corpus of the Indian traditions, right? Right. right. Whatever literary corpus that they, they, they produce, well, let I, alone well, the think, practices and so on. Well, <laughs> even Martin uh, Farrakh, right, in his article about Buddhism and Brahmanahood, um, right, he wrote that one, right? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yes. Where, where, where we have the uh, like the idea, like for example, um, and this goes back to not only just the Hindu uh, text, but also Buddhist and Jain in, in a in a very fundamental way, because like I mean, his article clearly shows, or he lays out the framework that's saying even the Buddhists and Jains at the time of when they came around were not talking about anti-varna; they were just trying to redefine or define what each of the Varnas meant within their tradition, because both those traditions are anyway um, uh, world-renouncing traditions. And yeah. nowadays we have this sense that, oh, Buddhism came out as a, as a reformation, Jainism came out of a reformation against the caste system, and that's actually lauded as if, like, it's the truth from Buddha himself, when the words of Buddha actually are very different. Yes, absolutely. So, so the way in which uh, Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism later on as well have been read as though they are some kind of, you know, uh, uh, Protestant, Protestant uh, or or rather re some kind of attempted reformation of Hinduism, along the lines that you know the Protestant Reformation was in in Europe, uh, is is also based on that template. Yeah, it's it is the Protestant reading of Indian history, basically, right. or the Indian past, and. Uh, I think the discussion was that you mentioned was more about uh, who is a brahmana, right? Who right. Who, who qualifies to be, be a brahmana, or who exemplifies the the qualities of a brahmana? So yeah, absolutely. And and uh, all the all these strands of the Indian traditions worked to, in a way, also to provide uh, some answer to that question, right? Right. Uh, so um, they work within the tradition rather than against. The fundamental positions of the traditions. Yeah, Brachit, I know you, you might have something to say on this. No, no, and yeah, this is very interesting. As Professor Shah said, they do indeed work within the system. You know, in my reading of the Jaina texts, you know, they haven't found anything explicitly anti-caste. You know, their their theology, their mythology, 
talks very much about all the ancient Kshatriya dynasties and even Brahmanas, whether they talk about them, you know, slightly positive or negatively. Again, you know, that's up for discussion. And in my reading of the Buddhist tradition, especially Mahayana tradition, you know, I found very interesting certain quotes, and, and I, can't, I can't give you the reference right now, but we could put in the show notes, that there's this whole idea that the Bodhisattvas and the, the Buddhas can only be born in a Dwija family, and, uh, and, and also particularly only a Kshatriya and Brahmana families, and the whole idea that the Maitreya, the future Buddha, will be a Brahmana and because the previous Buddha was a Kshatriya. So this is kind of a movement towards, you know, just these two groups that, that are considered very noble. So, you know, this idea definitely pervades uh, Buddhism. I have brought this up multiple times with, uh, you know, people, sort of neo-Buddhists who, you know, who, who go with the whole I, I, idea of Buddhism being a, a reformation. And uh, there are, there yeah, are uh, basically these are anti-caste movements, right? They've been transformed into anti-caste movements. Exactly. Uh, as as has you know this the Chaitanya Vaishnavism. <laughs> all, yeah. They've they've all <laughs> managed to transform themselves into into or, or they have been transformed by their you know interlocutors and students and so on. So yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, um, we've taken a lot of your time. I just want to end on a few points. Uh, I I, I just want to make it clear to our listeners also that. One of the things that none of us are saying is that there's no such thing as violence between communities or that there isn't oppression or there isn't marginalization of of people or groups by other groups. I mean, I don't think any of us will will say that. Um, but I think what we're saying, what I think what I think we're the gist of what we're saying, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, guys, is that the way we conceive of this violence or marginalization in terms of some sort of system of caste is pro is is the problem um and more so than 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 um than the, than fighting the idea that there is such a violence it is it, it's a problem in at least two ways it's a problem in the sense that uh it's leading you down uh, the a false path and secondly, it's preventing you from formulating uh, better explanations of what's happening in society. And then I think the last point that I, I would like to make is also, you know, many times when we refer to Hindu texts and, you know, Raj has brought up like Brahmana Shetyas, I mean, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that the most of the writers of these texts tend to be Kshatriyas and Brahmanas, um, yeah. or the ones that have survived to this day. Um, and 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 th there can be something to be said about that in separate conversation with, you know, s people maybe with uh, uh, Professor Minsk, you know, uh, uh, Prakash, uh, 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 Prakash, uh, your mentor might have some some ideas about this, but it just that's separate from the. I mean, that fact is it, it also includes the fact that we don't hear many voices of the Vaishyas and Sushudras. And other people from the time ancient time period, and we also have to be cognizant that that is there too. So, Mukunda, I, I well, do, do we know that? I'm I'm not sure if I'll go with you on that. Actually, okay. How do we know? Well, first first of all, uh, this is good. See, I like that, it. that that kind of statement would first of all want us to subscribe back into uh, the caste system story. Because we think that there are, there are varying levels of oppression within Indian society, presumably, and right. therefore the vo the voice of the most oppressed have been repressed or suppressed, and that they they should be. Do, what, do we know that? 
Well, I'm not saying there do, were do suppressed we know any, or repressed. Do we know the truth of any of the components of that, that, no, no, that so, way so, of framing the issue? No, so, I, I mean, then let me reframe it. I'm not saying there were repressed or suppressed. I am saying that what we have today is only that, right? There could have been quite a bit of writings that these communities wrote, um, but we don't have them. And, and it also could be the case that these communities, and again, I could be totally mistaken, and, and I'm, I'm only talking about it in, in the sense of what we know. I mean, we know in the open issues there are some level of all, all four Varnas involved. Um, but I don't, again, what we know about some of these texts is, is that what we have today, right? There's so many, I think someone has indicated there's like 30 or 40 million manuscripts of different texts that have yet to be translated and brought to the forefront. Um, so all I'm saying is what we tend to study tend to be from these communities. I, I, I know, Rajat, you might have a different perspective. Yeah, so I'm actually more in line with Professor Shah on this in, in, in terms of, you know, can we really, you know, uh, argue in, in, in this way? You know, I'd say that there are, you know, certain ideas of, uh, you know, this, these so-called quote-unquote lower classes that exist in the Mahabharata, right? With the whole episode of the uh, Anishram Dharma, where the fowler is actually responding yeah. to the problem, right? And so there's Mota in the story of Nala and Damayanti, I'd also say the medieval texts, actually, when you look at the Nath tradition, when you look at a lot of uh, Tantric and Shakta texts that are not, in not Sanskrit, you know, they're more medieval languages, or even in Sanskrit, that there is, there's completely, you will see a voice of, you know, these, uh, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say certain quote-unquote caste groups, but uh, heterodox groups. Who, uh, uh, can can I put, throw in a spanner in the works? Absolutely. Yeah. Go for it. Look, let, let, let me put the problem in this way. If you have somebody who's not qualified to talk about physics, would you want them to talk about physics? Absolutely not. So that's the kind of problem it seems to me that you're facing. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> because you see, if it depends how you look at the Indian traditions. If you look at them as knowledge traditions, uh -huh. and that there, there's a group of people who, whatever, develop, research, transmit knowledge, teach it, etc., etc. And then at the same time, we're saying that we don't know what the people who haven't taught would want to say. Right. Although they haven't engaged in research, etc., etc., uh, it's, you see, it's that kind of problem that I think you're putting. Uh, if, 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 if you adjust the lens to the perspective that I'm speaking from, I'm trying right. to speak from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so obviously there are presuppositions there as well, right? Like I, it's not as if I'm coming without presuppositions, but in is what is the better way of viewing the problem? And, and actually, now that you put it that way, if 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 you look back, and, and I'm quickly going through my head, um, just thinking out loud, is yeah, you're right. If you look at it as a knowledge tradition, right, many of our texts tend to be very knowledge centric, focusing on a particular topic or a particular uh, uh, practice, or whatever. So it makes sense that only people that engage in that practice would talk about it. Or, or you'd to, want you surely you'd want to know about knowledge from its purveyors, not right. from its non-purveyors, right? So, yes, and, and, so. and <laughs> absolutely, I, no, put in that context, it, it makes a lot more sense to talk about it as a system of knowledge as opposed to talking about it as a system of expression of all people, 
Yeah, or class interests or yeah. something like that. Right? Yeah. If, obviously, if we if we buy that story, the the social social justice warrior story about Indian yeah. traditions, then it's legitimate to talk in the way that you 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 earlier expressed it. Sure, I can right? see that. Yeah. Because then we would want to value all perspectives and the voiceless, you know, the subalterns should be given their voice, etc., etc. But right. is that the kind of situation we're facing when we're talking about, I don't know, production of knowledge within the Indian traditions? No. So, uh, uh, yeah, in yeah. what what is the order of our question? You know, in a sense. No. Or, uh, or, hmm. And I think how you framed it um, does change how you approach it. Yeah. No, professional. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this and, up. And it's not. It's not as though yeah. there there isn't an argument to be had about that, right? Like, yeah. Like how are we viewing it? So that's where I think it's very important that you move. We move the debate there as well and ask questions about sure. how do we view the, the what we're seeing here? You know, what is it? What right. is it that we're viewing? No, you know, because sense. if it's if it's one thing, then a certain type of question is appropriate. If it's the other thing, another type of question may well be appropriate. You're correct. Uh, Rachet, you had something to say. Yeah, no, I'm saying, Fatsuna, thank you for bringing that up because, you know, it, it just kind of goes to show that how ingrained this way of thinking about the world is in our minds, right? That you, even without questioning our own assumptions, we, we start to talk about these things in this way uh, instead of taking a step back, like you said, and said, hey, you know, is this the right way to look at it? You know, would we indeed want people who aren't the purveyors of those knowledge systems to be talking about it? And, uh, and yeah, it just really, you know, makes one pause and, and start thinking about, you know, deeper assumptions. True. So um, before we end, uh, Professor Shah, do you have, uh, I actually, I'll, I'll rather end with you at, uh, at the last word. Rajit, do you have anything to end with? No, thank you. Um, Professor Shah, do you have anything uh, you want to tell us? Like, well, to end, I, I think not only this, what, what, but also one, like working on the future? Uh, well, I, actually, I'll just end with this simple thing, which is that uh, many complaints have been made to me about the price of the, the book that we're discussing. Uh, but one thing which is on the horizon is an Indian edition, a South Asian ed edition, sure. uh, which the publishers are going to produce probably within the next few weeks. So I would ask uh, or urge your listeners to look out for that. Okay. And it promises to be a much more affordable one than the European edition has, has been, which is actually basically quite unaffordable for most most people. In yeah, India. It, it was really uh, expensive, but it's it, it would, to be honest, it's a great book to have uh, for anyone that's remotely even interested in these issues. Um, you know, if you can't get into the West, I mean, uh, at the Indian price, I would recommend if you have the ability to buy it, just buy it and share it with your friends or whatever it is you can, because it is yes. a very well researched and very well argued book that really makes you think about how we think about caste. Yeah, thank you for bigging up the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. that's, that's crucial. <laughs> And, and do you um, have any other work that you're working on that you expect to come out anytime soon or any last thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm hoping, perhaps against hope, that uh, the stuff that I've been working on uh, with respect to cost, uh, you know, because there's been quite a few smaller projects which have, which have come out as a result of my encounter with cost and cost system studies, uh, they may end up looking like a, a book length work, but I, I, I'm not making any promises in that direction <laughs> yet. But I'm, that, that's what I'm hoping to achieve, let's say. Yeah. Excellent. At the moment. Yeah. Um, any last thoughts then? Uh, anything you want to like maybe uh, sum up or? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just hope that as a result of our conversation and reading the book and so on, that people begin to take this 
uh, this kind of hypotheses that are being offered in the book more seriously and, and try to develop them, take them further, because I don't think that the book is by any means the last word on it. I, and I think we admit that. We, ac we actually explicitly say that these are very preliminary types of right. you know, hypotheses that we, that we provide in the book. But there's so much more work to be done. You know, and what we've, I suppose, more been able to do is try to inform people about the kind of frameworks that have been uh, influencing our study of caste and of, of India, right? But it right. doesn't, you see, there's the other side of it, which is that, well, if, if Indian society is not like this, then what, what is, is it like? Yeah. Right? So we need to go into that question very, very seriously, you know, but we've got to remove some of the blockages along the way. So I suppose that's what we've been trying to do is at least provide some means by which people can start to shed the blockages and then move forward. Uh, yeah. And the question of how to move forward is by by no means obvious, you know, so we need to work on that as well. Absolutely. So, uh, Professor Shah, thank you so much for your time and and indulging us in this long conversation. Which oh, th I, thank I you for inviting me. Oh. Incredibly interesting, fun and enlightening. Um, Rachit, anything else? No, thank you, Professor Shah, again. Yeah, no, this conversation certainly helped, you know, us uh, try to address some of these blockages at a personal level, too. So I, I hope the listeners will also, uh, you know, go read the book and, and really start talking about this, uh, this whole, these whole topics, uh, you know, with, with a little more uh, a critical thought put in. So thank you yeah. so much. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Thank, thank thanks you. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Oh, okay.